Hi, uh, welcome back to Espionage Ant. I have Sudarshan Garg with me again. We are about to pick up uh, from where we left off last time, and that was the exit of the Soviet Union from Afghanistan. So, very quickly, February nineteen eighty-nine, the Soviet Union decides they've had enough, and the exit Afghanistan over the friendship bridge across the Amu Darya. There's a very famous photograph of the Soviet commanding officer, commanding general. uh crossing it very poignant photograph because uh the guy is obviously very emotional at that point of time etc etc uh what happens at that point of time is the ISI and the CIA are practically jubilant uh they've defeated the Soviet Union in Afghanistan and now all that remains between them and Kabul is the government of uh Najibullah who was uh uh well you could say he was the Soviet client in Afghanistan now uh the cia and the isi they both uh, plan a very fast assault on jalalabad which is right next to peshawar and their hope is you know once they've captured jalalabad they're going to install a soviet government over uh, sorry an afghan government over there they've got the peshawar 7 they've sort of you know bashed their heads together and made them sign something called the peshawar accords which dictates how power will be shared once they have control of afghanistan uh hekmatyar's people someone from hekmatyar's group will be the prime minister masood's group will get the defense ministry etc uh, etc et it's a power sharing agreement uh, hekmatyar is not happy because he doesn't want to share power but anyway uh, between then and now uh, stands the assault on jalalabad hamid gul uh, tells benazir bhutto who's just become the prime minister of pakistan that the assault will be over in a matter of uh, days maybe a week at most and once they have jalalabad once they have captured the garrison there then they'll uh, transport these chaps to jalalabad and declare the 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 afghan the new afghan government from afghan soil sounds perfect except it doesn't go that way the mujahideen groups they assault jalalabad and the planes around jalalabad become killing fields for them the garrison holds and najibullah clings on to par what this did was it gave the soviets confidence in their client they now believe that najibullah could hang on he could hold par so now the soviets begin a massive massive shipment of food oil arms and ammunition and by massive it, it it it's measured in billions of dollars najibullah uses all that to buy off militias who aren't part of the peshawar 7 so now he has militias coming over to his side uh, in addition to that what he does is he recruits 20000 molvis to counter the radical islamist agenda of the peshawar 7 uh, they have some amount of success though not too much and the most important thing he does is he pivots hard to afghan nationalism he now begins talking about the isi being the outsiders because obviously they're pakistani they're not afghans and the fact that the peshawar 7 are now backed and pushed by the pakistani so he's is framing it as if he is the afghan government the afghan nationalist and his opponents are pakistani puppets right so you have right. any comments about this up until now yeah no so that's a very succinct uh, summary uh, so so just a couple of points to add i mean i think it's important because uh, this will come up uh, to haunt everyone in the future uh, the us at this point uh, i mean 
after the soviets left right uh, i think that's very important to state because you did mention the, the you know the cia and isi but then state department of foggy bottom basically started losing interest uh, in afghanistan almost almost immediately after the you know the last uh, soviet uh, t72 or whatever pulled out uh, that's very important because that's going to have huge uh, you know ramifications uh, say even just half a decade or whatever down the line uh, but that's okay. i think that's the only point i felt that was very very important to mention because state department and the white house essentially dropped afghanistan like it was you know a, 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 a like a sack of uh, hot potatoes uh, because right. of course their, their attention is going to be fixed elsewhere very soon uh, because yeah. you have saddam making moves all that's going to happen in the background but yeah that's a very important point point one i'm i'm happy uh, you brought thing, that up uh, there's yeah. a slight aside to that uh, the middle level of the state department uh was absolutely against supporting chaps like hekmatyar at this point of time the soviets had withdrawn the state department said look let's get afghan technocrats from all over the world back into kabul they're willing to come let's get zahir shah back here the former afghan king and let's form a government under these guys hekmatyar and company are not the kind of people we should be associating with uh they get overruled by the cia because uh, the leadership at state and in the white house as you said have completely lost interest in afghanistan uh, it it doesn't any uh, exist anymore for them right and it's going to get worse because by the time we hit uh, you know the bill clinton regime uh, a the bill clinton regime was fairly pro pakistani of course which we will cover when we come to that uh, period uh, but uh, you know as far as bill clinton was concerned you know afghanistan was not even a place on the world map it just didn't exist uh and also very interesting you brought up that uh, you know the the constitution monarchy solution because if you remember or if the readers will remember the soviets had proposed the exact same thing uh, you know in the mid, in, in around 83 84 as a compromise they said uh, you know to pakistan they said we'll meet uh, we will bring in a constitution monarchy uh, but it was we told even back then because pakistan has always and continues to have its own vested interests in afghanistan for the various reasons we've covered so far right perfect so let's begin with najibullah surviving in par uh, the soviet union continues shipments of food oil arms and ammunition all the way until 1991 when the ussr itself dissolves and uh, what happens at that point of time is all these shipments all the support that najibullah is getting it dries up the central asian republics the former stans that were part of the ussr uh, these guys sort of step in they ship oil and wheat which is what they have uh, to the najib government uh, because they do not want a radical islamist government on their doorsteps uh, they've always and been india against india as well india yes. also india uh, also steps up aid to najibullah's government unfortunately right. that isn't enough uh, at this point of time around the end of 91 beginning of 92 sorry uh, uh, the Uh, around april 1992 uh, abdul rashid dostum uh, dostum uh, he reads the writing on the wall he figures out that najibullah won't be able to buy the loyalty of militias forever and so he defects along with his 40 or 1000 uh, uh, ethnic uzbek uh, soldiers to on mass he defects to uh, ahmed shah masood's side Uh, right this happens right. practically overnight and uh, that's his third switch, isn't it yeah yeah i think and that's the third or fourth switch 
Dostum was uh, brilliant at survival, right? Uh, he figured out which side was going to win and he just I, managed to be on that side. side. Like, like I changed clothes, which is like three times a day. Uh, no, listen, Shonak, I'm going to stop you right there. Uh, because yeah. I did honestly get this as a feedback as well. Do you want to very broadly take, take say, two to three minutes and lay the table uh, for who the participants are? Because, see, we keep, you know, name dropping, uh, but then... Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe our, part, our listeners might not know exactly, you know, for example, we say Najibullah Gaon, right? Uh, yeah. They might not understand exactly what is it that we mean. So can you, and let me frame it this way. Why don't you frame it so that you have the Afghan uh, government then you have the pro-Soviet camp and then you have the pro-Pakistani. And I would say I've, I'm going to drop America at this stage entirely, but pro-Pakistani yeah. camp. So maybe the key okay. names, key players, you just want to drop it so that, you know, people get a context Fair or a framework. Fair enough. Fair enough. So uh, the Afghan government at this point of time is led by Mohammad Najibullah. He uh, belongs to the Communist uh, Party in Afghanistan. I forget their exact name, but it doesn't matter. Uh, he he used to be a committed communist. Uh, the guy is a doctor, but he has spent a lot of time in their secret service. He's, he's known for uh, uh, interrogations. Let's put it that way. And uh, the guy uh, has become uh, the leader of Afghanistan in 1985 or 86, I think. Uh, he's he's pivoting hard to Afghan nationalism, but it's it's a little too late for him because uh, he's he's got a solid opposition against him in the form of the Peshawar Seven. Uh, I think we walked through the Peshawar Seven earlier. These are uh, the Mujahideen who are allied with Pakistan, or basically they're. Uh, uh, supported by Pakistan. You have Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, uh, you have uh, Amacha Masood, and you have a few others whose names uh, escape me at this point of time. So if you want to run through that, uh, please take over. Otherwise, yeah, we'll just I will. move forward. No, but by now, the, the Hekmatyar 7 is pretty much uh, I mean, dead in the water. So let's just look at the key leaders, uh, and I'll maybe try and you know bring in their uh, ethnicity also, because that's very important. Uh, on the on the let's say okay i'm just going to say the afghan government side right uh, right now they're the good guys for, for lack of a better word uh you had uh, the, the, of course you had the president and then you had his key defense uh, i mean later defense minister ahmad shah masood uh, then you had ismail khan and abdul haq we were again discussed abdul haq and we had the famous mr jalaluddin haqqani so haqqani at this point of time uh, at least during this civil war sort of uh, flirted uh, with different directions and different sides uh then then on the on the say negative side okay i wouldn't say negative but i would say on the pakistani side of things you had the hezb a islami now that was the single largest uh, fighting force i think you could say it compromised almost 60 to 70 percent of the afghan government's uh, opposition unless of course you counted the pakistani army which i'm not uh, i don't want to get banned so uh, that was led by the brilliant mr ekmatyar who we have already spoken about at length uh, then you had the Hezbe Wahadat, and then you had a, a coalition uh, called a Mili, Junbish I Mili or something on those lines. Uh, and uh, here is very important because the Hezbe Wahadat was a Shia unit uh, primarily. It was backed by Iran. And then, of course, we've spoken about uh, the Uzbeks. So this was a cocktail of, and I'm not gone too much into the commanders in the pro uh, or rather the Afghan government side because. Uh, I mean, that's just too many. I'll just be name dropping, but suffice it to yeah, say, I mean, is, you know, 
if we do that it, this becomes an afghanistan podcast and i'm i'm not sure yeah, we so, uh, have the bandwidth to do that or the readers exactly. are the interest or oh, all listeners. the expertise or the knowledge to be very honest um yeah. and so so essentially it was let I, I let me put a table it was uh, burudin ramani it was najibullah amachan masood abdul haq uh, primarily these were your commanders on the afghan government side they held various ministerial posts and all of that in the government uh, on the flip side you had gulbuddin hekmatyar uh, you had dostum who switched of course and then you had uh, shehzai so uh, so basically and then you had multiple tribal leaders okay and then you had the non afghan players so like you had osama bin laden at some stage you know providing material support uh, to the anti afghan government factions then you had uh, hakani who briefly flirted with both sides but then switched entirely to the pakistani camp uh till he would again switch back i think uh during the okay that we're jumping 20 years now so yeah, yeah so talk. this is broadly the coalition and then you had a lot of ethnicities i think again this is not an afghan government pod, i mean afghan history podcast but suffice it to say you had the pashtuns uh you had of course the pakistanis who are entirely different you had the uzbeks you had the tajiks and you had the panjshiris i mean it, it's like a small country but then you know it's like a kitchri of uh you know it's not a monolithic entity you know most people see afghanistan and say okay monolithic muslim country absolutely no. not no so it's, it's just not so i think now we can that's the background uh, and uh, on the positives okay on the afghan government side it was supported primarily very broadly by soviet union and later russia uh, then you had iran supporting it you had india supporting that entity uh, on the flip side it was supported primarily by pakistan and saudi arabia of course a lot of the other smaller emirates like you know uh, qatar all of that raised money so there's a lot of sources uh, you know money that flew into these entities uh, from all right, i'm going to pause you charities. there yeah. i'm going to pause you there let's uh, get back to yeah yeah i know we have yeah, yeah okay let's go back all right so uh, abdul rashid dostum uh, reads the writing on the wall he shifts loyalties to ab uh, mh masood uh najibullah sends his defense minister to mazar e sharif to figure out what is going on with dostum and to win him back all right uh najib is frantic because dostum commands 40000 uzbek soldiers uh these guys are uh, ethnic uzbek soldiers these guys are really well trained they've been fighting for the communists for uh, more than a decade now they're they're really good in combat uh they still are they still are yeah. brilliant uh they're a small unit but then mm-hmm. even the soviets recognize them as a as a br- tactically brilliant uh, you know group good unit okay. cohesion good tactics so they were quite feared as well right uh, what happens is the defense minister also defects to mosul that was uh, that was pr- practically the end of the najibullah government uh, it's it's uh, now late into uh, sorry it's it's the middle of april in 1992 the najibullah government is going to collapse there are two factions within his supporters uh, one faction wants to align itself with uh, basud the other one wants to align itself with hekmatyar uh, now hekmatyar is about 20 kilometers away from kabul okay he's he's southeast of kabul just 20 kilometers away in a valley uh, i mentioned its name last time again it escapes me i'm sorry about that and uh, he wants to ride into kabul in the morning on freshly cleaned vehicles you know uh, he he it's his conquest the end of his conquest toyota tacticals to... let's be specific toyota tacticals yeah 
third are tacticals, but he wants them washed. He wants them, you know, clean. He wants to be the the shine, knight in shining armor at that point of time. So he goes to sleep at night, uh, 20 kilometers southeast of Kabul, and uh, a, 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 an Arab uh, uh, journalist who was embedded with him. He says uh, Hekpatyar had a habit of switching off his radio at night, which he does before going to sleep. Wakes up in the morning, performs ablutions, gets ready, switches on the radio, and he hears that Masood has taken Kabul. Now, how did that happen? Well, the faction of uh, Najibullah's supporters who wanted to align with Masood, what they did was they went and they took over Kabul airport and Bagram airbase, and with those airports in their control, uh, Masood was able to fly those two soldiers. from Mazar-e-Sharif to Kabul overnight those two soldiers took over the city they set up defensive perimeters and they waited for Hekmatyar to arrive uh, Hekmatyar figures this out he uh, he starts assaulting Kabul uh, the outskirts but the defensive perimeter holds and he's forced to fall back at that point of time uh, Ahmed Shah Masood rides into Kabul on a tank a soviet tank which is bedecked with flowers okay the hero's arrival and uh, hekmatyar is obviously livid because he believes it is his right to rule kabul at this point of time he's shed blood uh, he is the strongest of the peshawar seven and he wants to rule it but he can't get there so he goes nuts he starts shelling kabul right and it was how do i put it uh, the isi knew about this and they were livid so i mean for a change i know I, i sort of you know there was a manoj night shamlan level twist there the isi did not condone this because there was a worldwide uh, pushback against this indiscriminate shelling of kabul which resulted in tens of thousands of civilian casualties it i mean it was bad it was i mean it's not just some random shells were dropped somewhere so he literally systematically targeted the city of kabul including its civilians so that that got a lot of pushback and you know even the us finally woke up because by 92 remember they they you know embroiled in in iraq uh, and have completely forgotten literally forgotten about afghanistan i mean afghanistan might now just be some corner office with three or four staffers you know you know that's how i picture it uh, it doesn't exist for them it, 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 there is no islamic threat at that point in terms of terrorism so they didn't care so it was all pakistan and pakistan definitely didn't appreciate hikmatyar you know going off the rails right uh and that continues that that's where the afghan civil war begins because uh basood uh, and dostum they consolidate kabul and the north of afghanistan it's it's a, a safe place relatively uh there is peace over there uh, some amount of business is going on but the southern part of afghanistan south of kabul is an utter mess uh, there are militias fighting each other uh, control of various districts or regions or towns even uh, rests with various warlords and uh, the pashtun parts of afghanistan are a complete mess at that point of time uh, this is where benazir bhutto uh, comes into play because she becomes prime minister of pakistan again in october of 1993 and she has learned her lesson uh, she doesn't want to mess with the isi or the army but she also looks at the central asian regions 
region that's the all the stans that used to be part of the soviet union as a very lucrative trading market and a source of energy for pakistan so what she wants to do is she wants a natural gas pipeline coming from turkmenistan into pakistan via afghanistan unfortunately the civil war complicates things for her she cannot deal with one entity in afghanistan to do this and besides there are two competing conglomerates for that pipeline one is unocal and the other one is of an entity floated by a latin american uh, fellow whose name again i forget i'm sorry but he's backed by a number of uh, saudi deep pockets who are close to prince uh, turki uh, who leads the saudi arabian intelligence department gid now at this point of time uh, uh, upon becoming prime minister benazir bhutto has appointed a former major general of the pakistan army named masirullah babar uh, he used to be the director general of military intelligence he was also tasked by zulfikar ali bhutto benazir's father with training tajik uh, fighters against daud khan because daud khan wanted a united pashtunistan inside afghanistan at that point of time and uh, general babar has uh, tremendous contacts both in the afghan bureau of the isi as well as across the durand line now general babar says why do you need to deal with masood and the northern guys forget them you want a pipeline let's build it through the southern part of afghanistan let's build it through kandar and then take it via herat in the west to turkmenistan that way we completely bypass uh, this guy masood uh, and his control yeah. which uh, uh, pakistan Correct. aren't able to you know really deal well with so uh, this is his plan and uh, in order to achieve that and in order to show that it is possible to trade via these regions he starts pushing trucking convoys through kandar and herat the problem with that is all these warlords that i mentioned earlier who were in control of parts of southern afghanistan they've set up checkpoints all over the place and these aren't security check checkpoints these are extortion checkpoints they want money you 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 want your truck to pass my checkpoint you pay me money otherwise you wait here if i if i feel generous i'll let you wait in peace otherwise i'll or, kill you or seize the vehicle and the and the assets or whatever yeah yeah of course so uh these truckers aren't really happy with the situation in southern afghanistan and neither are the people in southern afghanistan they're absolutely tired of war they're tired of these warlords you know uh, milking them dry so this is where the taliban come in because this uh, around 1994 the taliban is starting to coalesce around uh, mullah omar in kandar and uh, babar provides him a lot of support he gives him money he gives him weapons and as so they start overcoming one small warlord after another they start growing in size now at this right, point of right. time yeah the, uh, there's one one uh, event that happens at that point of time that really changes the taliban's fortunes uh, one of masood's allies is in control of this town called spin boldak which is right on the border with pakistan between uh, near quetta uh, this guy hands over the keys to a weapons depot that was built up by the isi and is chock full of weapons uh, 
small arms, you've got rocket launchers. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. CIA weapons, basically. He hands the keys over to the Taliban and joins them. And they get a huge shot in the arm. They've got tons of weapons. They've got money pouring in from Pakistan, which is basically Saudi money. And uh, they've got a very fertile recruiting field in the madrasas in Pakistan along the Durand line, which have been financed by the Saudis again. So they start growing in size. Uh, It's literally exponential growth at this point of time. They're like a startup, which is, you know, uh, they've, they've achieved product market fit. They're growing like crazy. They're taking out one warlord after another, and the people are happy and, because these and, guys and are getting on, rid of the checkpoints. And I'm going to stop you right there because another important piece of information, and this comes entirely from you know Ghost Wars uh, call, which we have referred to the bibliography because that's important. Because in in the early days, uh, or even even much later during the civil war with Masood, uh, the Taliban when they initially lacked the type. See, remember, I think one thing uh, you know the readers must understand. Is the Taliban were never, you know, they were never a military unit. Uh, they were basically preachers, right? They were mobile preachers, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, Pakistan, the ISI sort of chose them to to bring them, you know, to groom them, and you know, so that they will act as their agent, which also failed. But then we're talking about twenty years or fifteen years down the line. But so so it was basically they were basically a very small group of preachers, you know, mobile preachers, and from there to becoming, you know, overrunning pretty much the entire country in say six years, uh, is, is, was made possible because of the ISI. The ISI mm-hmm. gave them money, like you said, they gave them arms. And also, very importantly, during Benazir Bhutto's period and Hamid Gul's period, they actually gave them men and leaders. You know, we're talking about non-coms, we're talking about, you know, uh, military officers who were sheep-tipped into, you know, uh, uh, into civilian life and who literally physically led assaults on various targets. So you had right. these experienced, trained, battle-hardened Pakistani soldiers reading irregulars into battle and, and grooming them, you know, giving them the tactics and giving them the skills that they would acquire and then become very effective against the U.S. later on. So I think that's a right. very, very, very important uh, you know, point, I think, that, that should be mentioned. And, and I, think, uh, one, I think one side, but it's very tragic uh, side, aside, I think that's very relevant also, is the fall of Najibullah. I think mm-hmm. that's very important. So, so let's just take let's, a couple let's of get minutes there. To... Yeah, let's let's take a couple of minutes. But before that, uh, he, here's how the Taliban differ from the Mujahideen in terms of how they fight. Uh, right. The ISI and the Saudis they've they've given them a ton of Toyota tacticals, and these guys are highly mobile. Uh, southern Afghanistan suits them all the way up to Kabul because it's flatlands. And these guys make the most of it. They zip along, uh, appearing from unexpected directions, uh, launching assaults, melting away in the face of uh, superior resistance, but then hitting it again and again and again until one by one garrisons begin to fall and the defense starts collapsing towards Kabul. Masood is the defense minister. Uh, He is in charge of... uh, securing Kabul and he makes one of the biggest mistakes of his life when uh, he agrees to a proposal by Gulbuddin Hekmatyar to ally against the Taliban. Masood accepts that proposal assuming good faith uh, he leads a sizable force out of Kabul down south to take out uh, the opposition. Yeah. Yeah. 
and what happens is hekmatyar's uh, commanders they switch sides they go and join the taliban so masood is caught in no man's land he's in terrain that is not fami- uh, he's not familiar with and his allies have just deserted him they've joined the opposition so he has no choice but to retreat pelmel to panchir and that is how the taliban yes into familiar terrain which he can defend and that is how kabul actually falls the taliban then zip into kabul on toyota tacticals uh, where they go into the un compound that has been uh, najibullah's home since 1992 they pull him out uh, along with his brother and then if you want to take up how he was killed and proceed from there please go ahead right uh no that's just a kill because i think the way see also and done he was okay he was a communist and he switched sides entirely he became an islamist he gave up communism that's what he claimed he persecuted people but he also had a certain vision he wanted peace he wanted to bring in cooperation which in a very factitious country like afghanistan was difficult then is difficult now uh so essentially what happened is when when kabul uh, fell like you know like we discussed briefly before to to dostum and masood uh he he sought asylum with india now the narshimara government back then was definitely not keen on a muscular foreign policy in afghanistan lest it offend i don't know whoever it could it could offend the pakistanis could offend the various uh, you know emiratis or whichever the middle east country so so we flat out refused asylum and that provide you know that caused a lot of pushback because you know he was seen as an you know an agent of india at some stage and uh, but but the indian you know government was very firm they said absolutely no asylum uh, he can stay there in fact and then and then he uh, after about 3 to 6 months he sought asylum in the embassy saying at least give me security and you know safety in the embassy that was also declined and then he sought uh, refugee in the un relief camp which right. is where in the meantime safe. yeah in the meantime india did offer asylum to his wife and his kids okay right yeah uh, not yeah. him but and that was never going to happen and masood also offered him uh, you know when he took charge that he would let him leave the country to whichever place you know masood was also a very honorable man uh, but again for reasons of optics i guess uh, he he refused because fleeing the country would mean he can never return to power when staying in afghanistan maybe he felt that at some point he might be able to engineer something uh, so he okay. was in the taliban so he was in the un camp taliban take over kabul one of the first acts like how say the you know the soviets did with the romanov dynasty one of the first acts they did was they sought him out literally tortured him brutally and then executed him and uh, yeah it was a very shameful end uh, you know also that he was a head of state and in my opinion he tried to do his best after the soviets left and mm-hmm. uh, and he held on like you said a 15 day assault turned out to be a four year long uh, you know uh, monumental defense and that collapsed only after the russians or yeah by then the russians and you know they had their own crisis economic right. crisis to stop funding him so so right. i think that was a very shameful end possibly india could have offered asylum we don't know but uh, this is yeah. what happened absolutely so uh here's where we are it is 1994 1996 sorry uh emacha masood and his forces have fallen back to the panchir valley uh, abdur rashid dostum's forces have fallen back to mazar-e-sharif and uh, the taliban are in control of kabul 
and the entirety of the southern part of Afghanistan. So they're in complete control of the Pashtun lands and they're in control of Kabul. We have now reached a point in 1996 where the Taliban have taken over southern Afghanistan. They've taken over Kabul. Abdul Rashid Dostum has had to flee Kabul and go back to Mazar-e-Sharif with his Uzbek soldiers. Ahmed Shah Masood is now back in Panjshir, having lost a fair bit of war material, which he had to leave behind when he fled to Panjshir. Kulbuddin uh, Hekmatyar is no longer a force to be reckoned with in Afghan politics. He's abandoned. He's also dropped like a sack of hot potatoes. He's literally Absolutely. dropped by the ISI. The ISI have completely disowned him. And uh, I don't know how he survived that uh, <laughs> from that point on, but he lives until today. So I don't know. Uh, pretty amazing. We should look into that story as well sometime. But that's where we are. Uh, that's where we're going to end this episode of the podcast because we've received feedback that uh, the first episode was really, really long. And I, I get that. I completely get that. Nobody uh, uh, likes to listen to two guys uh, yapping about some topic for more than 30, 40 minutes these days. So let's just pause over here. We'll cover the rest of it uh, from 1996 to 2001 in the next episode. That's it for this episode of Espionage and To read about real-life cases of espionage, visit espionage.substack.com.